You're listening to the Disciple Community Podcast, sermons, teachings, and timely words from the Disciple Community Gathering at The Source Wichita in Wichita, Kansas. For more audio, video, and other resources for Christian growth and encouragement, visit thesourcewichita.com. All right, friends. So, over the past month or two, the Lord's really been dealing with me on some some stuff concerning the uh, the topic of vulnerability. Um, it's been dealing a lot with me considering what's right and wrong. Like, what is sin? What isn't a sin? How do we deal with sin? That kind of thing. Um, and it's coming from the context of really considering... This whole thing that, we, that we're dealing with in society right now that we see all around us, especially if you're on Facebook, <laughs> it just seems to be the worst there and, and Twitter. Um, but there's this whole right and wrong debate about all these hot topics. Um, abortion, being gay, divorce, I mean, just all sorts of things this whole right and wrong situation. And, and what I see more than anything is that people are really nasty to each other. Um, and I've always asked the question, like, <laughs> we asked it in the 90s by wearing bracelets, what would Jesus do, right? But I, I just wonder, I'm like, what would it be like if Jesus had social media and he actually used it to engage people. First of all, I think it would be wise enough to not even have it in the first place. <laughs> um, and if he did, I think he would post the best memes ever. And I would share them and retweet them all the time. But I wonder how Jesus would just drop into this debate and really just, like, first of all, make everybody look like fools. But in doing so... He would have so much love and grace and mercy for those who have been attacked, abused, judged, rejected by the thought processes of these people who are coming in and inserting their opinions and saying really nasty, horrible things about other people. It, it would be it would be mind blowing. And this is how Jesus was. Jesus, it, when he dealt with the Pharisees, he really came at people from. <laughs> from another dimension, like seriously, from another dimension, another dimension, (laughs) another dimension, Beastie Boys reference. But honestly, Jesus was on an entirely different level. He had an entirely different level of understanding. And where we look at things as right and wrong and black and white, somehow he was coming at things from from a, a higher understanding, from a different place of wisdom and a different place of love so that he didn't, I don't think he addressed things in such a black and white manner. Even though when we look at scripture, we see things pretty black and white. Do and do not. Thou shalt, you shall. And so there's commands that the Lord would give. But we also know that throughout the entirety of scripture, we see people obeying and disobeying. And God continues to deal with these people in, in different respects. Um, and so I'm trying to frame this 
in the mentality of how maybe trying to judge things from a, a perspective of right and wrong can be wrong in some ways. And so there's probably a lot of questions. Well, how do you know if the Bible says this and the Bible says that? Well, then this, that, and the other. Well, yeah, Scripture does give us morality. Scripture does show us right or wrong. But when Jesus inserts himself into this world that was ruled by the law and ruled by religious leaders, pointing at people and saying, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, and punishing and rejecting and exiling people, Jesus inserts himself into that and says, you, you've got it all wrong. And he comes with love and grace and mercy. And I'm going to talk about one of my favorite um, Bible stories. You guys can turn there. It's John chapter 8. And it'll start in verse 53. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But before I do that, I want to I want to preface this story and just the rest of this message. And I'm going to read some stuff to you guys because I want I want to make sure that I'm you follow my train of thought here. One, I think um, in this realm of right and wrong, I think sometimes there's an underlying, an underlying fear of, of rejection in that we fear being rejected by people. Um, people won't like us. We won't fit in. We're not cool enough. We're not smart enough. <laughs> We're not good looking enough. Why are you laughing? <laughs> oh, you do? Oh, wow. I mean, it really, rejection is a fear that we all have. And I think that um, ultimately what rejection um, of man, we fear we're going to be rejected by man, ultimately stems from maybe in the same nature that we have a fear of being rejected by God. But I can tell you that in my personal walk, that I feel so secure in God's love for me that I can tell him everything, and I know that I won't be rejected. But the fear that still exists in me is that I can't tell you all everything and fear that you won't reject me, right? Or fear that you will reject me. Just as, a, as an individual, as a person, I've not been completely honest with my friends or my family concerning personal struggle, struggles and hurts and pains and, and fears and those kinds of things. I've been somewhat completely honest with my wife in some regards, but not every detail all the time in my struggles. But certainly have stepped into a, a deeper place of vulnerability with my wife and even with um, some of my closer friends. And it's interesting because we think we think about the people in our lives and, and we see some people as safe and we see some people as not safe. There's only so much I can share with you. And I think if I get too far in sharing with what's going on with me or what I believe or think or whatever it is, that I can only go so far in that before you're going to reject me or cut me off or we're going to disagree on something. And because the world is so easily split over tiny disagreements and because the church is so easily split over tiny disagreements, well, then who can we really agree with? Who, who can we really be vulnerable with and open with? And I think this is a problem. This is a major problem 
it's a problem in my life. It's an, it's a problem in the church. Um, and so I think maybe if I talk about what I mean by rejection, I think ultimately it means we're going to be cast out or set aside or the, it's going to be the end of my relationship or my friendship or someone's uh, not going to talk to me anymore, that kind of thing. But ultimately, I believe it boils down to judgment, and we're afraid that people are going to judge us. And once they judge us, typically judgment means there's some sort of punishment. After judgment comes the punishment, the ruling, right? You're guilty, and so now here is your punishment. You'll be fined, you'll be put in jail, you'll be executed, whatever it is, according to the law. So with judgment comes punishment. I think ultimately that fear of being vulnerable with people means that we're afraid that we're going to be judged and then somehow punished, that there's going to be some sort of consequence for our actions or for our authenticity or for our vulnerability or for telling people the truth. And so what happens is we all, we run around with masks on and we only present a certain part of ourselves to people. Right, and it's always the polished mask. It's always, I'm going to look as, as best as I can to other people. I'm going to act like everything's okay, right? What is the, one of the most, my most feared questions, and it makes me awkward in zero to 60, right? I'm just like awkward and weird, and, and I like find it in myself to bold-faced lie to people when they ask me, so how are you doing? But it's like that real, like, how are you doing question. They look you in the eye and they don't break contact. And you're like, that's weird. Like, you start looking away, bouncing your eyes like, yeah, man, I'm good. And you're looking away and, no, yeah, really, it's cool. Yeah, family's great. And, oh, you know, the job situation, but this, that. But other than that, yeah, everything's great. Which, on the inside, really, if we were honest, and so let me just give a caveat to that, like, we don't need to dump all of our junk on every single person that we come across, right? You're standing in line at the grocery store and somebody behind you, hey, how you doing? And they're just like, well, so-and-so this and that, and I've got this tumor and then my dad and then, but, and you're just like, whoa, <laughs> but at least they're honest. <laughs> but I think there's a little bit of wisdom in that. And, and, and it's that question that is fearful to me because most of the time, if I were to really tell people how I was doing or the things that were affecting me on a spiritual, emotional, relational, financial level, like things aren't always as they seem. They're not always great. And I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but here's the thing. Like, I think it would be foolish if we submitted ourselves to the treatment and the di- or the diagnosis and the treatment of a doctor, right? Like we go to a doctor and we say, hey, I'm not feeling well. And then they say, well, well, first of all, some of us don't even go to the doctor when we're not feeling well. Oh, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And it's like until we have 104 fever and we're hallucinating. And, you know, that's when it's like, okay, let's go to the doctor. It doesn't have to get that way, but oftentimes it gets that way. And too many times we invite people into our struggles when we're so far down the line with the immensity and the intensity of our struggle. Um, I won't tell you who this couple was, but I remember sitting down 
uh, with a couple and they needed counseling. And I finally, I got a phone call and the wife was just kind of irate. She's like, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. Um, and I'm like, okay, what's going on? Well, he's just this and he's that and he doesn't listen. And, and then he calls me and he's like, she's this and she's that. She doesn't listen. So to me, it sounds like typical relational struggles. So I get to their house and I'm talking to them, trying to counsel them. And eventually I break down in prayer, like weeping for this couple. I'm like, God, I don't know what's going on. Like, I don't know what to do for these people. Like, you're going to have to insert yourself into that situation and, and do what you do because I, I really don't know what's going on here. And so when I'm there talking to them and they're just saying, well, just pray for us because we're having struggles in our relationship, I can only do so much. And then come to find out, it's like I get a phone call later and it's just like, we're addicted to pills and she cheated and I got to go to rehab. Relational struggles, adultery, addiction, emotional abuse. I mean, I, I would venture to say, and I'm going to read this to you, and I've read this last week, but there are hurting marriages, there's division in families, there are broken relationships, there's bitterness, grudges, hatred, anger, gossip, jealousy, pride, sexual sin, addiction, substance abuse, porn addiction, coping mechanisms, all of these things that maybe even exist amongst many of these people in this room. But certainly more so, I mean, just pick a struggle and a stone's throw away in one of your relationships in your life. There's something going on behind the scenes that you know nothing about. And for some people, it goes much deeper than they let on. And like I... <laughs> I had a conversation with a guy one time and he was uh, struggling in his marriage with his wife and, and he was like, man, I just have these thoughts and he kind of expressed some of them and I'm like, I've had those same thoughts. He's like, I'm not alone and I'm like, no, you're not alone. And I think as the Lord continues to show me the depth of my brokenness, he's not only revealing my brokenness, but he's showing me that that same depth of brokenness exists in a lot of the people around us. And so going back to judgment and punishment and rejection and being right and wrong and all these different things, I just, one, I think that people are afraid to be vulnerable and authentic and honest with people around them because they're afraid that they're going to get rejected, but they've also seen others around them get rejected. And they've seen not only us in some way, shape, or form, but even the church in general. Like, I googled why I left the church one day, and I read story after story after story. And granted, it was one-sided. But here's the thing. If people are feeling that way, it's not, there's, it's not for no reason. And I think these are authentic people who are saying, look, there were some really terrible things that happened and really terrible things that people said to us. And so with the church, supposed to be a hospital for the wounded, right, not a, a uh, museum for the perfect, you get, can you imagine if a person walked into a hospital and they're limping, they have black eye, and they were like, I, I was beaten in the alley, and I need help, and they were like, okay, come into this room, and then they just started kicking them and beating them more, and how often have we had broken 
bruised, abused, battered people emotionally, physically, spiritually come into the in, into church or the church or somewhere where there's a religious organization that says they love Jesus and they want to just make disciples and show people the love of Christ and then they say they come in and then they're they're bruised and then they admit the severity of their sins and then they get beaten and bruised more well yeah you shouldn't have made those decisions so yeah you're just gonna have to suffer the consequences I'm that's you know or people come in carrying that emotional baggage and they come to the church because they think something's going to change. And as they get vulnerable and honest with people, well, then they begin to reject them because they're just like, well, they're still, they're still an addict and so there's nothing we can do for them. Right? Or they're still this or they're still that or they just did this and just did that and so I can't help them. Right? It's like going to an ER and then the very thing that caused you to be there, they continue to exacerbate and so we kicked the kicked and we beat the beaten and we abused the abused, abused the abused. And I just, I feel like for me, this is a call in my own life that the Lord is showing me that I need to deal with people very differently. And the way that he deals with me is the way that I ought to deal with others, which is immense grace and mercy and patience and love and kindness. Um. And so I just want to say real quick before we dive into this story. I just want to say that if I don't believe it's so much if. Like the question isn't, are they right or are they wrong? The question is, how are we treating them when they're wrong? How do we respond, respond to people when they've done something wrong or they are doing wrong? Because. First of all, I know that nobody in here is perfect, and I don't claim to be perfect. And if I hold people to a level of perfection that I myself don't meet, and it causes some sort of reject, excuse me, rejection or judgment towards others, well, what does that make me? It makes me a hypocrite. Holding people to a standard that I myself don't live up to. And so we're going to see Jesus in a situation in John chapter 8 where he deals with an issue of right or wrong, but he doesn't approach it from a, a place of right or wrong. He doesn't approach it from a place of judgment and punishment. He shows grace and mercy of love and, and love, and he, uh, he reveals the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in the story. It's one of my favorite. And so all of this just to say, that I think it's time, one, that we all become a little more vulnerable with each other. And practically, I don't mean everybody comes up and shares their sin and their deepest, darkest, darkest secrets. But we all know the things that eat us up on the inside on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think if the Lord's really going to bring healing to those things, they have to become exposed. And so in this story, we're going to see a woman caught in adultery. But imagine if you confessed adultery. Should there or would there be a different way that you approach that scenario? I think it's a lot. It might feel the same. I don't know. It, maybe it's worse to get caught than it is to confess. But to confess, it feels like maybe the worst thing on the planet. But I just want you to know that as people who have Christ living in them, 
that the Father's heart would be the same towards both, that we would show love and mercy and grace to those who confess. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But even if we're caught in our sin, Scripture says, while we were dead in our trespasses, even while we were sinners, so there was no hiding the fact that we were sinners, Christ died for us. And he shows his great love for us in this, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so whether we confess or we're caught, we're met with the same thing. Sometimes it seems like it would be worse to catch somebody than for them to confess. Maybe we would desire that somebody come and confess something to us before we catch them. But the situation calls for the same treatment with love and grace and mercy. And so, I want to look at this, uh, this scripture. And so let me go ahead and read it to you. So John chapter 8, verse 53, and we'll go all the way down. Um, oh, wait a second. What does that say? Why do I keep saying 53? 8, 1. <laughs> There's a 53 next to my 8 right here. I don't know what that means. (laughs) So it says this. They went uh, each to his own house. Oh, it was the end of 53, I see. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us, to stone such a woman. So what do you say? So what are they doing here? They're asking him, um, first of all, they're telling him that based on his law, right? So let's just, let's understand this whole scenario. You've got the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were the people who looked at the written law that they had, the Torah, those, those books, right? Everything they had, Levitical law, the Mosaic law, all that stuff. They had all the commands and the law of God given down by Moses in order to, um, to let that word spread and in order to um, keep, that, keep that word to, I can't think of the word, um, but they would, they would write it out line by line. So the scribes spent hours and hours and hours and days and years transcribing the scriptures to new scrolls, Right? And that's what they did over and over and over. I mean, they were like the religious, holy people that were saying, we need to, we need to keep this going. We need to make more manuscripts, right? We need to take this word, and that needs to continue to spread, essentially. We need to be able to, to keep it and hold on to it because it's sacred to us. And so they were the ones that were writing it out um, line by line, and there were symbols, so every jot and tittle. Isn't that the word? (laughs) And so every little stroke of the pen, meticulously, over and over. So the scribes, first of all, had been in the word. Okay? The Pharisees were the religious leaders who would take the word of God, and they would give it to the people, and they would give the commands. And not only would they take the word of God and give the commands to the people and preach the word of God, they would also speculate and um, and consider and meditate and theologize over what they thought the scriptures meant. So then they came up with the Talmud, which is a commentary to the Jewish scriptures. So they said, here's what the scriptures are, and the scribes would continually produce these. 
And then the Pharisees would take them and teach them and interpret them. And then so they had their their books, uh, the, the Torah, and then they had their Talmud where they said, okay, here's what we think this means. And they would just heap this law on the people. And they were the ones who were the religious authority and the power to be able to tell the Jewish people what was right and what was wrong. And not only did they tell them what was right and wrong, but they took it upon themselves to be the ones who carried out judgment on those who were doing wrong and giving the high five and thumbs up to those who were doing right, which is really just themselves in their own eyes. So do you see this religious power structure of right and wrong? And here's the scripture and using the word of God to rule and control the people. Jesus said earlier to the people, he said, come to me, all who, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that was a direct blow. <clears throat> that was a burn to the Pharisees. So here comes Jesus, this guy. He's saying, look, take my yoke upon you. And then he says later, my commands are not burdensome. And it was in direct contradiction and opposition to what the Pharisees were doing, which were heaping burdens and putting yokes on people they couldn't live up to. And that the Pharisees and the scribes couldn't live up to. So just hypocrisy all around. So Jesus comes. <clears throat> they're trying to catch him in this right or wrong situation. Which if you, if you know what happens in society, you get a Christian artist on TV. It happened to Laura, Lauren Daigle, right? We just talked about that. She was on Ellen. Is that where they asked her on that show with some other... Yeah, the media gets this Christian person, and what do they start asking them? What do you think, homosexuality is wrong or right? Is it a sin to this? Is it a sin to that? And they catch them in these black and white scenarios. And it's because they want to be divisive. They want to pick a side. Essentially, they're trying to ask Jesus, are you on our side or are you not on our side? Are you from God? Because here's what the scripture says. Or are you not from God? That's what they were using to judge whether or not God was from God. And so they catch this woman in sin. She's already caught. She didn't come and confess. She was caught in adultery. And they bring her before Jesus. And they ask him this right or wrong question. And not only that, they're already assuming she's wrong. And so now they're just asking if the punishment is the right punishment for her. So this good Jewish boy, Jesus, who as a, as a Jewish child would, would have um, learned the scriptures to recite them verbatim, word for word, by the time he had his bar mitzvah. And then we, also, we already know he was a rabbi, so he made it past that age into the religious system and was trained at temple. And so he would have had all the same, he would have read all the same scripture. Right? And he should technically have had all the same knowledge that they had. But Jesus comes with this different perspective in this situation. So this woman's caught in adultery, and they say, Look, Jesus, your law, now when the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, what do you say? That would have been the law Jesus had to adhere to. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law, I came to fulfill it. So in fulfilling the law, he technically should have had that woman stoned. Yeah, it's what the Bible says. She's wrong. Moses' law said we should stone her, so let's stone her. Right? That would have been the right thing to do, according to right or wrong thinking. 
Here's what it says. Here's what I should do. But what does Jesus do? Does he sin by not doing what was right or wrong according to the law? Of course not. That would negate everything that he did on the cross. We have to believe that what he did in this situation was right. So how did he approach the right or wrong situation? The black and white situation, how did he approach it? He superseded it. He was above it. He was beyond it. He knew that beyond that black and white scenario, there was this very powerful thing that just tears through black and white and right and wrong, and it's called love. And that's Christ as his nature. He comes in and he infuses love into a situation, and it just eradicates this right or wrong scenario. And it doesn't look at the woman and say, you've done wrong, you're worthy of death. This is a gospel message. What does he do? Well, he says, first of all, he who has no sin casts the first stone. So he calls out the, hypocr- the hypocrisy. So he says, in the way that you're going to deal with people who are hurting, they're hurt, excuse me, they're hurt and they're sinners, like this woman who committed adultery, let me just tell you that, like, I don't think she was strutting her stuff like, yeah, I committed adultery. Of course she was ashamed. I can't imagine. I know some of the sin that I've dealt with in the past, and there's a lot of shame and a lot of guilt that comes in and weighs people down. And to be caught in a sin is probably the worst feeling ever. And so she's caught in adultery, right? She cheated on her husband and was caught and then brought in front of the religious leaders for judgment. What a terrible situation. Can you imagine? I couldn't imagine sitting on a stage with a bunch of elders and deacons and they're like, we're here in front of the church today so that we can have church discipline because you've been caught in sin and we need to figure out how to deal with you. (laughs) Kill me now. What a terrible feeling. I'm not, now I don't know any churches who've ever done that. I know it happens. I've heard people talk about how the pastor will call out people's sins from the pulpit. I'm like, what? Are you freaking kidding me? That's terrible. That's not how you deal with that. So just imagine how this woman felt. Guilt and shame. Cheated on her husband. She's caught by the most religious and powerful people in the area. It's like me cheating on Kim, and then the mayor comes and says, all right, let's go to City Hall. We're going to sort this out. And I'm in this room with all these powerful people like, oh, you know. And Jesus is there, and he's like, any of you guys? Don't have sin, go ahead, get to it. All right? He didn't say whether or not you should stone her. Right? He didn't he said nothing about should we or shouldn't we stone her. He just said, "Okay, everybody search your own hearts. Figure out what's going on here." And so I think about that and I think about this topic of vulnerability and I ask myself the question, how am I going to deal with people when they come to me with their mess and their junk? They come in their vulnerability, or even if I catch somebody in something, like, how am I going to deal with that? Am I going to be open to receive them and deal with them? Or are I going to think, okay, what's, you know, right or wrong? Like, are they worthy of their punishment or whatever? Like, I just think in the same way that Jesus deals with this woman, it helps us understand how we ought to deal with others. And so he says, let him who is out with, uh, without sin among you be the first to stone her. And he b- bends down and writes on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. 
and Jesus was left alone in the, with the woman standing before him. Now, there's all sorts of speculation about what he was writing in the ground, and I've heard it said that, you know, it was like the older to the younger because the older ones were obviously wiser to understand, um, like, their own sin. And I think that's kind of valid just by my own experience, that the older I get, the more, the older I get and the closer I get to Christ, the, the more I understand the depth of my brokenness and the nature of, of humanity and their sinfulness and their brokenness, right? And then I realize how everybody, everybody needs the grace of God. Everybody needs immense love. Everybody needs immense patience. Everybody needs God to deal with, the, with them the way that he's dealt with me. And let me tell you, God has been very patient with me over time. There were times in my life where I felt like um, I, I was, I had convinced myself that God had forgotten about me because I looked at all of the sin in my life. Let me just tell you kind of a, a, a weird experience that I had, and obviously you'll be like, yeah, you were high, so of course you thought that. But I remember getting <laughs> just really stoned one night, and I was... Um, I was in a time in my life where I was drinking, doing drugs. I was running from the Lord. I thought I had, I convinced myself I missed my calling. So it was like, oh, I'm called to do this and that, or I'm supposed to do something great for the Lord. And the longer I didn't do something great for the Lord, the more I convinced myself I'd miss my calling. And so it was easier for me to just slide back into old ways because it didn't matter anyway. I'd already missed it, so I'm screwed, right? So I'm working at this restaurant, and I have this friend who, um, he invites me over, and he's like, you smoke weed? And I'm like, yeah, well, sometimes. He's like, oh, I got the good stuff. And so it, I'm just going to be authentic <laughs> in what I'm talking about. I used to smoke hood weed, which is just like trash weed. And this guy was white guy in the suburbs, and so he had really, he, they called it kind bud or something like that. It was like really good, potent marijuana. And I smoked that like I would normally smoke just a trash joint, Okay. And I remember just being super, super high, and I'm laying in bed. I spent the night at this guy's house, and uh, I started hearing voices. <laughs> and the voices that I heard, I interpreted as angels talking about me, saying, look at him. He's never going to get his act together. Why did, <laughs> why did God even assign us to this guy? <laughs> But what's, I mean, granted that may have been brought about by high levels of THC, but I'm thinking in my head it's manifesting as why does God even bother with me, right? Why hasn't he given up on me? I deserve by my disobedience and my sin to be rejected and forgotten by God. I deserve that from him. Yet he continued to pursue me. Over and over and over and over and over again. I was like, gosh, I don't know, it must have been 23 or 24 at that time. And just over and over, like each step of my life, I think I'm better and I'm not, yet he's there to meet me with love and grace and mercy, and he never gives up on me. He sees, <laughs> well, first of all, he sees Christ when he looks at me, which blows my mind because I only see the brokenness that I have in me. I only see all the things that are my flaws and make me unworthy, right? That's what I see most of the time. But I'm also like, 
I'm, I'm more confident in Lord's work in me now than I ever have been. The older I get, the more I realize my brokenness, but the more I understand the grace of God. And so just throughout my life, I've seen all of this, this sin and this doubt and all these things that have existed in me. And I think just the Pharisees in that moment were like, yeah, like, man, who am I? I think they had a moment. I mean, they had to really wrestle with what was right and wrong in that situation. Here's the scripture. She should die. But here's this guy who's like, have you considered your own heart? And then they look, they take a deep look into their own life and they're just like, it's not even an issue anymore. And I think too often we look at the sin of other people and we don't look so much at ourselves, maybe as much as we should. And we get so focused on everybody else's right or wrong and we forget really how far the Lord has brought us and how much he's shown us grace and mercy. So all these people walk away, and this is one of my favorite lines in Scripture. It says, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the oldest, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So then it's just it's just Jesus and the woman. Right? Only God can judge me. <laughs> and uh, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Right? Has no, one, has no one judged you and punished you? And she says, no one, Lord. <laughs> I love it. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So what happens in this situation? Jesus confirms that her actions were sin. But when it came to a moment of condemnation and judgment and death, was this act worthy of death? Jesus was stepping into that situation <coughs> and he's bringing the gospel and he's saying, even though you are caught in your sin, even though you should be stoned to death because of your actions, I'm not going to condemn you. And so what good does it do to distinguish between right and wrong without having the ability to show grace and mercy and love to those who are wrong. And so what do we do? We stand, we get on a pedestal, right? We stand, we, we get up here and that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And somehow we're justified in our rightness. But what do we do when someone is wrong? How do we treat them? How do we treat somebody, right? The, the big gay debate, is it a sin to be gay? We know what Scripture says. But how would Jesus deal with the homosexual population? Right? Would he be standing on the corner with signs that say God hates fags? You know what I mean? How's he going to deal, right? Is abortion wrong? We know what Scripture says about abortion. We know the sanctity of life. We know that God loves children and people and life and birth and reproduction, right? He commanded us to go forth and multiply. Of course, we know where we stand on abortion. But how do we deal with those who have aborted children, right? How do we deal with them? We look at their actions and we judge whether or not they should be punished or deemed as right or wrong in their actions. What good does that do? 
Jesus addresses the action, but he meets that place of condemnation and judgment with mercy. Neither do I condemn you, right? I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's saying there's not going to be a judgment and there's not going to be a punishment when there's love and grace and mercy. Someone comes to me and they confess cheating on their wife and being addicted to porn and having an abortion with the woman that they cheated on with. Like, how do, what, how do we deal with that? What is their need in that moment? Do you think they need condemnation and punishment for their actions? Do you think we're supposed to remind them what the Bible says about it? Well, you know the Bible says you shouldn't. Bro, I know what the Bible says. I think about that in my own life with my struggles. And then when people tell me, well, you, man, you know the Bible says, and I'm like, I, I've read the Bible my whole life. <laughs> I've sat through the sermons. I've read the books. I've watched other people. I've listened to other people. I've, I've studied. I can say the scripture over and over and over and over and over again, right? It's like trying to get a child to learn a lesson by writing something on a piece of paper a hundred times, Right? In the same sense, it's like as Christians, we're trying to get people into that process like, well, you know what the Bible says, you know what the Bible says, you know what the Bible says. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But I did, and I couldn't help myself, and I hate that about me. Just knowing what it says, is that supposed to transform a person? The woman knew she shouldn't have committed adultery. We didn't have to remind her of being wrong about her actions. And I think oftentimes we get caught in that because we don't know what else to do. Right? How are we going to deal with those people? I don't, I don't think the church is ready to deal with the brokenness that exists in the world because for far too long we've rejected people because of their brokenness. Now, I'm not saying every Christian, I'm not, I mean, just, just hear me in this. We need to wake up. We need to understand that if we're truly going to see people desire the Jesus that we preach about, the church and the people of God, which is the church, we have to be willing and ready to deal with those people in those vulnerable places and be so filled with the love of God, his mercy and grace that he's poured out to us to be ready to give that, right? I, I made the statement one time or asked the question. I said, you know, Scripture says that we can boldly approach the throne of grace, the throne of God, and receive mercy and grace in our time of need. I'm confident of that. But in the same mercy and grace he gives me when I approach his throne, are you ready and willing to give that to me when I approach you, my brother or sister in Christ? I may be confident that he'll give me what I need, but I may not be confident that you'll give me what I need. And that just goes back to that fear of rejection. Like one of the first things I did with, with Kim when um, we got engaged uh, we were just hanging out at her house one night, and I just kind of got, you know, I was thinking, I'm going to have to confess everything to her. Like, she needs to know how terrible I am because I don't want her to find out later and then run away. I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to be judged and then condemned and then exiled from this relationship. So I'm going to confess it all now, the things that I think are the most terrible things that I've ever done in my life, and I'm going to confess that. Because I don't want that to be something that's going to be a point of rejection later on. And I had to talk to her about a couple things. And I got them out, and it wasn't the worst thing in the world. And 
I knew that she was just like, I'm going to love you anyway, and it, it's going to be fine, and we'll work through this. And it's I'm like, wow, she might be the one. <laughs> she is. She's the one. And there's just, I, I think that there continues to be this fear of rejection by the most broken people. Because all their lives they've been rejected by people, so now they're living in a place where they're afraid to confess or be vulnerable or seek healing because they don't feel like they're going to get the help that they need, right? Are we ready to deal with, so what, what is the statistic? It's like 50 or 60% of men who attend church on a regular basis and proclaim to be Jesus-loving, Bible-reading Christian men, like 60 of them, have looked at porn within the last week? Are we ready to deal with the depth of porn addiction in the men in our churches? If they all confessed, what if you have a deacon who says, I'm addicted to porn? What if you have an elder? What if you have a pastor who says, I'm addicted to porn? Right? What if you have somebody in your church who's like, I committed adultery? Do you deal with them? The people who are the most broken need the most help and the most love and the most grace and the most care and they need the most discipleship, right? But we continue to do things status quo. Everything's good as normal. Like, oh, yeah, here's a four-week series on how to get your finances in order. But I'm sorry that you're dealing with addiction and your marriage is about to fall apart. I know this sounds harsh, but look, I feel like the Lord is has really impressed upon me this is the year of vulnerability and this is a year of authenticity and honesty because he wants to bring healing to the deepest, darkest places, right? A surgeon cannot, cannot cut out a tumor unless the individual submits himself to the hand of the surgeon and acknowledges that there's something wrong and acknowledges that he needs help and acknowledges that he, he needs to submit himself to that process, that surgery, that healing process, and look, when somebody gets cancer, their, their entire life cha- it changes. Their life changes, right? And then they have to get treatment and chemo, and everything changes. Families, they rally together. They do fundraisers. They do walks. They, they take the person to chemo, and they pick them up, and they care for them, and they're by their side. And there's just this, like, tremendous communal thing that happens, and everybody who loves that person gives everything they can, their time and their energy to help see that person beat cancer. Cheesy, cliche, Baptist analogy. (laughs) I say Baptist, pastor, sorry, pastor. I used to be Baptist. Baptist pastor analogy. (laughs) Um, I mean, think about the, the spiritual cancer that some of us have, right? It's not a... The situation isn't, let's figure out if what you're doing is right or wrong. Well, you know what the scripture says, so you just need to be obedient to the scripture. Tell me the last time your willpower changed anything in your life. (laughs) It takes the spirit of God and it takes a community of people who are ready and willing to help walk people through those situations. Grace and mercy and love. Let's get past this, is it right or wrong? What do they need in that moment? What did that woman need in that moment? Did she need to know that what she did was wrong? Would it have helped if everybody said, well, you know what the scripture says? You know what the scripture says? All those people there, 
Every single one of those people had the potential in them or could have in some way, shape, or form forgiven, loved, and walked through and with and cared for this woman in her brokenness, yet they just decided that she was already worthy of judgment, and so she's done for. And I think one of the greatest mistakes that we can make as people is thinking that somebody is beyond saving, someone's beyond redemption or beyond reconciliation, because that says a lot more about what we believe about Christ and his power, right? And so I just want us to be people who somehow, some way, let's just consider today how we might start to maybe see things through a different lens, and it has to be the lens of Christ. Like, far too long I've worn those right and wrong glasses, right? It's the knowledge of, of good and evil. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, eating from that fruit and saying, I now have the ability to decipher between what is right or wrong, which was not what you gain with the tree of life. The tree of life brings about an entirely different force, It's the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God in us. So when Adam and Eve sinned, God said, well, let's cast them out or else they're going to have access to the tree of life and they're going to be like us and live forever. Having that power of God in us gives us that eternal life, but it gives us the Spirit of God that gives us the mind of Christ that gives us the heart of God. The Spirit comes and lives in us, gives us the mind, and then we can have the mind and the heart and the nature of Christ, and we can deal with people, not in the black and white tree of knowledge of good and evil situation, which was what the Pharisees were doing. What's right or what's wrong? What does the tree of life say? What does Jesus say? How would he insert himself into this situation? Jesus blew people's minds. It said that they were were in awe of how he answered with such authority and new teaching. Like he was able to supersede those situations and really get down to the heart of the matter and then bring people restoration. Like I can't imagine what that, how that woman felt. I cannot imagine how she felt. It's like walking into a courtroom knowing that you should be going to prison or you should have the death penalty because of the actions that you did. Right. And so you've been in jail. You've been caught by the authorities. You've been like you're you're guilty. You're going to face the judge today. We're going to figure out what's happening to you. Right. And there's another cliche (laughs) story analogy. But you get into the courtroom and you're before the judge. And the judge says, did you commit adultery? You're like, "I, I plead guilty committing adultery. And then he says, not guilty, no punishment. (laughs) but don't do that again. So let's say I knew I was facing death. I can't imagine. She probably broke down into a bubbling mess. (laughs) I would have just folded into the the fetal position and just wept because my life was about to be taken, right? There's stones on the ground. There's men who want to stone me. I'm guilty. It's about to go down, but it didn't go down, right? Right? And just this is the love of Christ that I think that we need to consider for others. And just again, how can we approach people in that vulnerability? Can we decide to not immediately judge and reject? And so I think it starts with us. 
and just the way that we're, we're vulnerable with each other, the honesty, the authenticity. I believe God wants to do that work in us this year, bring us to that place of humility and vulnerability, begin to heal us because it's those who have been healed that can help heal others, right? It's like this is why AA is so, so powerful of a tool for people who are alcoholics because it's filled with people who have gone through the 12 steps and they take somebody by their, by their arm and they sponsor them and they walk with them through the steps to bring them the healing that they had to get, right? You're an alcoholic. I was there. I walked the steps. I did it. Let me walk with you. <clears throat> Discipleship, right? And so I think as the Lord brings healing to us, he's going to empower us to be in a place to help bring healing to others. And so I just want that to kind of penetrate our hearts today and our minds and, and, and just we're going to ask the Lord to just shift the way we see and shift the way we think and just help us see from that different dimension because it's a powerful dimension. I can't imagine the freedom and the hope and the love that this woman felt in her guilt, being wrong, met with love and mercy and grace and kindness. It wasn't a point of division for Christ. He wasn't coming to divide himself from her, right? Not on that matter. The dividing matter for Christ is do they or don't they believe in him as the Messiah? But even to those who didn't believe at that time, he still died for them. Very interesting, huh? So I'm just going to pray as we end, and we'll just ask... uh, we're going to ask the Lord to just release that to us, like that spirit of knowledge and wisdom and understanding to just come and just just take the blinders off. Maybe we've seen the world black and white, and how can we enter into that that different dimension that, right, it's the heavenly realm. It's the way that that God sees the world and sees people. It's the mind of Christ, and so really just coming into agreement with more of that, and I believe he's going to work that out in us, so we'll pray. <clears throat> so father i um I just want to admit on my behalf, and maybe there will be people in here who would just agree to the statement that um i've done a lot of I've done a lot of judging, I've done a lot of condemning um I've said of people in the past that they deserve what they what they got because of their actions and Sometimes that's true, but Jesus, you you somehow, you rose above that black and white situation and you infused love and mercy and grace um, to somebody who really truly needed it. And so God, would you just empower us more and more to be able to give to others what you've given to us. God, would you help us first and foremost to be vulnerable in our own lives with our spouses, with our friends. Give us wisdom with who we should be vulnerable with, God, and, and, and the things that we share. Scripture does say don't, don't throw your, your pearl to the swine. We have to guard our heart, all of those things. But, Father, in the ways that we need to be vulnerable and open and authentic, God, uh, you show us, Lord. You know the depth of our brokenness. You know the places in our hearts that need healing, God. You know our coping mechanisms. You know the walls we've put up. You know our addictions, our sins, our lusts, our habits, our, 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 our flesh desires, God. You know those things. And, and we're just as fed up and sick of those things. And so, God, we, we want to say yes to the healing that you want to bring to us. 
And so start that process in our lives, God, whatever it means. Give us opportunities to talk to people, God. Give us the the courage just by the Spirit in us to um, be able to, to say the things we need to say and talk to the people we need to talk to. And as you walk us through this healing process that's so filled with love and mercy and grace, God, I know that you're equipping us to be able to give that to others. And so, Lord, I just pray that you break this thing wide open, God. I see that you want to do it, and so it's your work, it's your spirit, it's your heart, God, and we just want to say yes and amen to what you want, Father. God, make the church a place of healing. Make uh, me, as, as a believer in you, a place where people can come and find healing. Yes, physical, but, God, emotional, spiritual, soul, mind, abuse, healing, God, just healing in, in every part of their of their being, God. Would you make me a place of healing and everybody here, everybody listening, a place of healing because your spirit resides in us and you can give us your mind and your heart, Father. And so I just thank you that you want to do it, Lord. We just declare it. We say yes. We say yes to being vulnerable. And we say yes to showing love and mercy and grace to those who need it, God. Give us discernment. Give us wisdom, give us understanding, give us love, give us mercy, God, so we can use all of that for your glory to those around us who need it the most, Father. And so we love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.